I'm Jasmine Moradi, and you are listening to the Power of Audio, Science, and AI. My guest today is Klaus Tune, Director of Music Creation at Epidemic Sound, the global Swedish music tech company on a mission to soundtrack the world. Klaus has in total more than 20 years experience from the music industry in various roles, for example, sponsorship at Tubor, Sonic Music, Network of Music Partners, and of those 20 years, he spent almost 10 years on the iTunes music team that launched Apple Music. Today, since a couple of months, he's leading the creation team at Epidemic Sound. Klaus lives in the heart of Copenhagen and has an economics, marketing, and sales management graduate diploma from Copenhagen Business School and a master class from the International Advertising Association. In this episode, Klaus and I are going to discuss the ins and outs of music as the enforcer, how to embrace the power of sound and music creation to elevate storytelling in marketing. With that, Klaus, I welcome you and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's very exciting and I'm very happy to be here and participate in this conversation. I'm happy to have you. How are you feeling? And please express your emotions with a piece of sound or music. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling really, really good. I've been looking forward to this conversation with you and uh, I'm excited. So, you know, this excitement should probably best be expressed by a piece of music that is uplifting and, and I was thinking really hard about this because uplifting pop music is always nice and there's plenty to take from but I was also thinking about keeping my integrity tight and and my personal brand and and the sounds that enforces that brand and I was thinking I would probably choose a track by The Cure uh, which is a band that I hold very very close to my heart and a track from The Cure that always makes me happy is the track Just Like Heaven from 1987. That would be the one that I would use as a kickoff to this conversation. Lovely. But then I'm curious to know then, what is your earliest memory of music as a boy? And when did you know you had a musical talent? This is, um, this is a really hard question. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure I've been thumping my feet uh, even before I can remember. I've always had rhythm at heart. Two songs that that really stands out to me in my memory are Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody and Elton John's Crocodile Rock. And I remember them being being played in my parents' living room for their, you know, reel-to-reel tape recorder, which was those big tape recorders that you had back in the day. And I cannot have been very old at the time. But those two songs are sort of the distinct first memories of songs that I that I really, really have. I never really felt that I had musical talent because musical talent for me is always about the ability to master an instrument. And I've never been able to do that. Lately, I've been picking it up just to see what you can do. Back when I was in my early years, I actually thought that I didn't really have it in me. A lot of my friends were playing in brass bands and big bands, and I was always just hanging around. But now I know that I just didn't have the patience to sit down and learn because that's what it's really about. I definitely think that some people will never learn, but I do believe that with the love that I had for music, I could have learned if I only had the patience. What I did do actually from an early age is that I was very much into music and I started making mixtapes. 
the old school style on cassettes, but also on the reel to reel. So I have had to be six, seven years old when I started doing this, either recording from radio or from a very old record player that I inherited from my grandfather as well. And I actually brought that record player with me in school for my, you know, Fast Alone, which is sort of a Scandinavian Halloween in, in February. I remember that in fifth grade, I was the DJ and I was using that record player. And fun fact is that I was actually dressed as Adam Ant. So this must have been around 1980. So music and an artist already then very, very close to my heart. Well, it's interesting what you say, because it's lived as similar uh, as, as myself. When you grow up, you think that musical talent is either you sing or you play the instrument. Exactly. And again, maybe I didn't have the patience, or I call it, I, I, I don't really uh, see the notes. So, so I feel it. So it came very later on. But what would you say that music has meant to you through the years? It meant everything to me uh, growing up. It was such a big part of my life. There was music in everything that I did. And we're going to talk about the consumption of music and how we consume it today and at, at a point as well. But even back in the day, the introduction of the Walkman, the ability to bring music with you when you left the house, I always had music on me or around me. And music is with you through your ups and downs. And, and if you go down memory lane, music is it's always there. And the memories you have are always, for me at least, tied to a piece of music. If I have a memory of having been in a certain place at a certain time, I always remember what kind of music was I listening to or what piece of music was I listening to at that time in life. So for me, it was it was a very, very big part of my life and an important part of my life. It was also, a, a, I think it became a, a, a big part of my identity. I was the music guy and, and also you were very much a product of what you listened to. Either you were listening to heavy metal, you were listening to pop, you were listening to new wave and, and you were categorized and boxed in one of those whereas today it's very fluent you can listen to everything that you want to without really being identified as something based on your musical taste alone but it does still say a lot uh, of who we are and the personality um because I, I can't listen to rock for example <laughs> it's, oh, really? it's, it's too too hard for me but a few songs yeah. maybe but how did you then end up in the music industry that was a long long journey i got very much into music collecting and collected vinyls and cds and i think at the height of my collection i probably had about five thousand. so it was a very very big part of my life and it was definitely a dream of mine to work in the music industry. But to me, it seemed like sort of a fairy tale land. It was a, a lost cause. It was so magical and unreachable that I didn't really think when I was younger that that was even an opportunity for me. So I started uh, looking into other possibilities for a professional life, uh, but I never really lost the motivation. You know, I, I also kept knocking on doors on various labels and but it was a weird thing because you always, the feedback you always got is that, well, you don't really have any experience in the music industry. And I was like, well, how am I ever going to get experience if you don't let me get that experience with someone? So uh, eventually, as I became older in my professional life and, and I started to learn a little bit more about how things worked in that business as well, 
I was offered a job at Carlsberg, which was very much a, a product marketing role, but with an emphasis on music as well, because it was a sponsorship role looking after the two-ball sponsorship in the Carlsberg portfolio. And the two-ball sponsorships were all about music. For me, that was the entry to the music industry, I would say. Having that job at Carlsberg introduced me to the rest of the industry, building a network and also understanding the mechanics of how the industry worked and who's who and getting a feel for, is this really a, an industry that I could see myself in, that I could thrive in and I could build a career in? And then forward a couple of years and I was offered a job at Sony Music. And uh, this was probably at the worst time in, in record label history because this was just as the market broke and we had to adapt to a new way of music consumption. So I remember my dad said to me, are you sure this is the right thing to do? You have a great job at Carlsberg. Do you really want to be a part of the music industry as it looks today? And for me, it was a dream come true. If you had asked a 15-year-old Klaus, what is your dream job? It would have been, well, I want to be marketing director for a record label. And this was the job that I was offered. So it was one of those things that I just had to do at the time. Yeah, as, as I say, it's not the money. It's just once you get into it, it it's hard to, to get out. And it's interesting when you talk about Carlsberg, because they work very well with music and done for many years. And I've worked in events, so sponsorship and events, they, they really understand the the use of music. But as I introduce you, then I would say you have an amazing career. And based on what you said, you got the dream opportunity to be part of the iTunes music team that launched Apple Music. So how did you get this opportunity and what was your role? I actually had to rewind a little bit because obviously being part of the Apple Music launch was, was, was extremely exciting. And I feel privileged to have worked on a team that was uh, part of that. But I also have to say that when iTunes was launched, Apple Music, it was really all hands on deck. iTunes, before Apple Music launched, it was a very tight ship, iTunes. There was not a lot of resources and we all had to contribute in whatever way we could at the time. So it was really a, a team effort and a very, very exciting time. My introduction to iTunes came also at a time in life where I was ready for some new challenges and... Um, it was very much an out-of-the-blue experience, I would say. Uh, alignment of timing, qualifications, and also uh, a certain element of karma, I guess. I believe very much in the notion of you get what you give. And as Apple was looking for a person to lead iTunes in the Nordic markets at the time, this was 2010, and they didn't have anyone on the ground. They were asking around using their network, and for some reason, my name kept coming up, is what I've been told. So... That to me is probably one of the best endorsements that I think you can get as a person and as a professional. And it proves to me that treating people as you want to be treated yourself actually carry a lot of weight. So I was brought on uh, at the time as a labor representative for iTunes for the Nordic markets and a handful of Southern European markets as well. And that brings me back to running a tight ship and inserting yourself where needed. So I did that for a couple of years. We then built a team in the Nordics with an office in Copenhagen. And then I also took on the responsibility to look after the independent labels and the relations with those labels in Europe. So I spent my time very much on the road, speaking to labels all over Europe, London and Copenhagen as well, looking after the team. And then with the launch of Apple Music, it was, as I mentioned, all hands on deck. So the entire music team contributed to, to this launch. 
And the first iteration of Apple Music was actually with a focus to create as many playlists as possible. That was really the idea of Apple Music in the beginning. There should be album-sized playlists covering as many artists' catalogs, genres, sub-genres, niches that we could find. And, and we were all creating 15-track playlist at the time. And this was with the notion of the playlist is the new album. That was sort of our approach at the time at Apple Music. So my initial role in, in that process was to make sure that the team I was managing uh, had everything ready for launch from a, from a local repertoire perspective through whatever teams they were a part of, uh, genre teams and so forth. And as we got closer to launch, I got on the road, presented Apple Music to the iTunes and Apple Music partners across the region that I looked after. Uh, so this was labels, relevant artist managers, and so forth in, in the Nordic and, and European markets. Then subsequently, over time, Apple Music changed the playlist strategy. And at that time, I also moved to the Apple Music headquarter in Culver City, California. And my role there was to oversee, I would call it the intercompany alignment and communication across the global music team. We had at that time Apple Music offices in a little more than 20 countries, and we looked after Apple Music in more than 100 countries. So there was a lot of alignment. There was a lot of power in reach as a platform as well. And we wanted to make sure that we gave the artists the best promotion that they could receive from Apple Music as well. So that was my primary role when I was sitting over there. Wow, what a what a life experience! I just feel like listening to your story, I'm like dreams come true. <laughs> what an opportunity! It's like a candy store for you to be able to be a part of building that. And looking back at it today, what what would you say then are your three best memories and three most challenging memories from that time? I would say. Working in an ambitious, successful company as Apple is a privilege in itself. I would definitely say that. Having spent a decade at Apple is, even without additional context, a great memory in itself. It's been a great learning curve uh, for me, and, and, and I have uh, great memories in working in that company. Specifically, being part of the launch of Apple Music is, is a great memory. The experience of building something new and the excitement of finally launching a streaming service, plus the feeling of working closely with great people. In this kind of launch bubble, as anyone who's ever worked with a product launch know that feeling, and it is a rather special feeling. I think that's definitely a, a memory that I cherish. And this brings me actually to, to probably my best memory of, of Apple Music, and that's the people experience. There's so many brilliant people working at Apple, uh, and you're being constantly challenged and pushed. And while at the same time, there is a lot of respect, and you have the ability to make lifelong friendships across countries and continents as well. So those are probably my most uh, fondest memories, I think, from my time at Apple. On the challenging side, there's always challenges, and not only just operating businesses, but definitely also in, in launching and, and big corporations as well. Specifically around the launch of Apple Music, it was probably about managing expectations with myself, but also within the team and, and also with the partners. Back then when Apple Music launched, there was uh, streaming in, 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 uh, in the Nordic specifically was a very established form of music consumption. And, uh, you know, a competing service had already gained significant foothold in the region. So our partners in the region was looking to Apple Music to 
sort of even out the competition. And this was obviously not a responsibility that Apple Music could take on alone. We were challenged by, by, by some, I wouldn't say lack of willingness, but there was definitely um, a fear of taking risk, I would say, from our partners in the region because of the competitive landscape. So that was a huge challenge for me. And, you know, obviously on a, on a personal level, we, we wanted to succeed, but it was hard to succeed without the backing from, from the local operators on the market. I would say also um, from a company perspective, I think Apple Music was challenged by having an idea on how they thought music should be consumed. And, and they followed through on that. And that I'm referring to the fact that we created all these bite-sized playlists and de facto creating an, an, a new version of an album, which uh, the world and the consumers, they had moved on from that already then. That was a big learning. And subsequently, we, we also changed that approach. Interesting. And what of those learnings in terms of skills have you brought with you uh, into your role at Epidemic Sound? One of the most important parts that I've taken with me from my professional doings so far is, is nurture your professional relationships internally as well as externally. Even on a global level, the music industry is extremely small. You're destined to cross paths more than once in your professional life. So listen, learn, and communicate. And again, coming back to also just my own way of life, you get what you give and be humble and be, uh, be ready and, and be alert, really. That's one of the things that I think probably travels across most industries, but I think because of the size of the music industry and a lot of the emotions you, in, you invest, it's so, music is so close to your heart and it's not only about a business. You know, you invest a lot in working in the music industry because it's it's something that you hold so dear. So I'm also saying this specifically because if we look at what I'm bringing with me to Epidemic Sound, I mean, Epidemic Sound is a disruptive player in the music industry. And there is a very specific vision within uh, Epidemic Sound and a, and a mission as well to, to create a world where music flows freely and fairly. So this vision doesn't necessarily sits well with other parties of the industry. And uh, that brings me back to it's, it's important that we communicate clear and in detail what it is that we want to do, but also at the same time, listen to the feedback from other sides of the business as well, because they may not be ready to, to operate at the same pace as we are at the moment. So, so tell us about the, the mission that you're mentioning and how will you in your new role help them achieve this? I really want to start by just rewinding a little bit and talk about Epidemic Sound uh, for those who, who don't know Epidemic Sound. So if we rewind just uh, really 12 years to make sure we capture the essence of Epidemic Sound and also why we believe that there is a place for Epidemic Sound in the industry, I would like to just share the story of how it came about. And this is back when two of Epidemic Sound's co-founders, Pierre Ostrom and David Steinmark, first put down uh, the idea on paper. Their idea was actually to supplement their work as pop songwriters and producers uh, with a more steady and achievable revenue stream. And this should uh, enable them to continue their musical talent in the studio each day, but also pay their bills without relying on a need to create the next big hit. So a more steady income stream. They saw many of their colleagues in the, in the music business working odd jobs just to make their ends meet. And, uh, and with the idea of making bespoke tracks to order, 
these two guys approached some of their friends, Oscar Höglund, uh, Jan Zakariasson, uh, Jalmar Winberg, who at the time were wading through the issues that came with clearing music for TV, really. And with that, Epidemic Sound was born. So it was really, I would say, out of a necessity from a music creator perspective, but also out of a need from a synchronization perspective. And what these five guys did was actually to find a niche where they could both benefit from making this cooperation. And just some facts to underline, if we, if we fast forward to today and some numbers, 95% of Swedish musicians, for example, earn less than $1,200 per year from income related to intellectual property. And the average musician in the US makes $21,000 per year. Uh, so it's, it's really hard to make a living in both Sweden and the US out of your intellectual property and music. So the mission is really to enable music creators to make a living out of the music they create. The aim is not only to honor music creators for their work, but also provide them with uh, financial stability. It's not only make sure that they get paid for the work that they put in, but also for their commercial success. So the way that Epidemic Sound works today is upfront payment for all the tracks commissioned. And that payment can vary depending on the complexity of the, of the track. After that, there is a 50-50 split on all uh, streaming platform royalties as well. And then we have added a quarterly soundtrack bonus for all music creators that are based on plays from the Epidemic Sound player as well. We think this is a very, very fair model. Music creators who work with Epidemic Sound uh, on average earn over $35,000 per year. So um, we think that by paying music creators upfront, regardless of whether or not their track is ever played, we, we take on the financial risk. That's the, the big picture on, on what it is that we're trying to do with, with Epidemic Sound. So my role is, is leading the curation team. And if you look at curation specifically as well, it may not be everyone listening in who knows what curation is. So, so I actually jumped to, to Wikipedia just to make sure that, that it's accurate and, and to make sure that, that we are aligned. Uh, so the Wiki version is actually very accurate. And it says to gather and organize a selection of something for a specific purpose. A curated collection is often meant for display or exhibition. So music curation means choosing and organizing music for the purpose of creating and guiding our experience of space, place, or thing. So this sounds very much what it is that we do on our team. And I think from personal perspective, one of my biggest challenges when, when I joined Epidemic Sound was my previous history of curation is different to the one that we are, the, that we are doing the, at Epidemic Sound to the extent that curating for a mass consumption DSP like Apple Music or Spotify or any, anyone else uh, curating playlists for mass consumption. It's about uh, making sure that the journey of the consumer is, is in line with the consumer desires and needs and moods and emotions, keeping them on the platform and keep them listening. Uh, whereas at Epidemic Sound, it's about getting our consumers in and finding uh, exactly what they need to enhance their storytelling so a lot of our customers don't want to spend a lot of time on 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 epidemic sounds platform they want to get in they want to find what they need and then they want to get back out you could say that that the curation is still curation but it was with a different angle and uh, and definitely a different challenge for me as well 
So I think what I'm bringing to the team is, is obviously my experience in working with playlists. I know about the user needs and I know how they behave. My main objective is to, to bring some structure and database decision-making to the curation team as well. So how can we make sure that the customer journey is as smooth and efficient as possible? And how can we make sure that we are efficient in finding the music that our bigger enterprise clients need as well? So it's as much an external tool for storytellers and an internal tool for ourselves as well in our curation processes. But with creation comes a million choices of, of songs and, and sounds. So what are the easiest part contra the most complicated part with developing created music for brands? On the curation team, we work closely with the A&R team to identify both uh, customer needs for new music, but also potential gaps in, in, in the existing Epidemic Sound catalog. The process of doing so is, is, is very thorough and detailed, obviously, and from brief to benchmark playlist and subsequent feedback, our aim is always to create a diverse and, and deep selection of tracks. I think the hardest part is, is probably uh, the briefing, getting the accurate description down to what is it exactly that we need? And then the subsequent dialogue with A&R people on fine-tuning tracks. It's also a very, very delicate conversation to have. The easiest part uh, is that everything is taken care of once the music is produced and delivered. We don't have any hassle with rights management, ownership, rights across borders, negotiations, all of these things. So once the music is, is done, it's done and it's it's ours to to distribute and and to uh, to handle uh, with with clients i think that's that's the easiest part and, and to, for able for the users to to find the right sound or music uh for the for example, video productions I, i've been on the website and a lot of music is about also how do you tag it right and working at Soundtrack Your Brand, I experienced a thousand of hours of like the music supervisors were manually tagging music. So looking at human creation versus algorithmic uh, creation, how do you tag music at Epidemic Sound? Well, just to explain also like on majority of these websites, when you find a sound, you look at like genre, mood, etc. So explain a little bit for us regarding this. My opinion is that uh, you know there's definitely a lot to be gained using both AI and uh, and machine learning as well. I think the need for human curation is still very relevant, and and it actually comes back to what you're saying right there. My experience: excessive use of machine learning alone tends to paint the user into a corner that is at times very difficult to get out of. You see it in music streaming. You mostly get fed more and more of the same. And ultimately, you sit in that corner and you try to juggle your playlists or your playing habits just to see if you can get out of that corner again. I think by adding human curation, you, you manually feed either the window where you get your content served or, or you can see the algorithms and subsequently rate and evaluate the, the results as well. So, so there is sort of a, a quality check, quality assurance, if you will. I think with the right tagging and high quality metadata as well, there's a lot to be gained. And that is something that we also do at Epidemic Sound. We spend a lot of time focusing on getting the tagging right. Again, coming back to, we want our customers to find exactly what they need as fast as possible. Uh, so we need to go beyond genre tagging, as you're mentioning yourself as well. 
Genres alone is, is, is not as relevant anymore in our case, because as a storyteller, you, you, there's something else you need and want to express. So we go deeper. We go into feelings as well. Tags like sad and angry and, and uplifting, all of these things that, that, uh, that, we, that we use as well. Uh, so that way we can, we can make sure that the storyteller can search in a variety of parameters, layer by layer, and narrow in on the, on the right piece of music. Now, I've tried myself to find uh, matching music and, 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 and images and videos and other people think because I'm in the industry, I, I know it, but it's really challenging. And, and I always say that you need like almost like Google search to be able to like, I want a music where the couple is kissing on the beach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly. it's not just romantic because romantic can be, you know, so much, you know, different. Um, so how do you do those meta tagging? Yeah, it's, it's super interesting what's it's coming ahead. Yeah, it is. And just think about the day where you can feed epidemic sound an image and then find a, a sound that matches that image. Wouldn't that be awesome? Super awesome. And, you know, technology is advancing, so I'm not surprised it's around the corner. But let's get into uh, also like you emailed me a couple of interesting music articles. So let's dig into them. And I have myself, and I know many others that personally find it challenging to search for the right music just for yourself, listening every day, as, as I said, is an ocean of million choices. Um, some of the topics of the articles were about the personal music listening experience and the need of fast and constant personalization, the lean back music experience, etc. So what is around the corner yeah, that's a very good question. I, I think the articles that I sent you were all articles that I found really interesting. What, what these articles are signaling is a move away from the very, very detailed personalization and sort of the, the lean-in experience. As a consumer, you want to take control and, and you want to uh, you know, make sure that, that you are in control of what you're listening to at uh, any time. I see that there is a huge shift in that space. And I think it's a little bit ironic because for a long time, the word in the, in, in the music business was that with streaming, radio was doomed. The streaming was the new radio and uh, they really had to reinvent themselves and, and in order for the radio to stay relevant. I do think that a lot of radio stations has already made that uh, jump and, and is in the process of reinventing themselves and the, the overlap between a streaming service and traditional low radio station is is uh, is already happening. What we are seeing right now is that the streaming services are launching lean back experiences more and more, both with with sort of flow stations or playlists that are long enough to mimic a radio station as well. The abundance of music available is is overwhelming for the average music consumer, as you say yourself. Most people don't want to be asked what they want to listen to all the time. They want to lean back and, and be entertained. I mean, back to your initial comment as well about you, you don't like to listen to rock music too much. You like the occasional track, but it becomes too loud. And with your listening habits, your favorite DSP of choice should know this by now and should be able to create a radio station or a lean back experience for you that would serve you the occasional rock track and they knew exactly which ones they would be, surprise and delight element. Uh, but outside of that, it, it should be a mix of music that they 
either know you're going to like or assume you're going to like. And that is where we're going to see a shift. Uh, and it comes back to what I said previously as well. We, None of us really want to be boxed in and we don't want to be sitting in a corner and just getting served the same dish over and over again. Another example of this is the is the need to sort of zone out or, or lean back again, if you will, uh, and the rise of, of, of long-form music. So long-form music is, is defined as pieces of music of 20 minutes or longer, delivered as one track only. And it could be a DJ mix, or it could be a carefully woven together mixtape that is, is flowing seamlessly, you know, an unbroken flow of songs and, and sounds even. So if we look at some of the numbers, uh, the upload of long-forms to SoundCloud, has increased with more than 20% just within the last year. And we've also seen, you know, services like Apple Music introducing DJ mixes uh, as well as, as part of their offering. So that, again, that way of an undisturbed flow of music and no need to lean in and pick the next track is, uh, I think, is, is definitely something we're going to see more of. But that's always why I love SoundCloud more and more than Spotify, because you have these people, because I worked in the event in, in the club industry, and this is the reason we love to go to the clubs, especially to go to the clubs where the DJ is amazing. amazing. They keep you in this flow of high for, for like hours. And as soon as you don't like a song, you, you're like, no, I'm going to go take a drink or I'm going to yeah. sit down. Right. And how do you bring that experience into the technology? Do we have to wear a watch or something that you know, feels us or, you know, um, Alexa, do we tell it? And so it's almost like you want to walk into a movie where your life is, there's always music there that fits uh, the walk in that you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super interesting. It is very interesting. And it, I mean, you, you said it yourself, it's, it's, it's really the soundtrack to your life. And, and you know, we are, we are listening all the time now uh, to, to, uh, to music or to podcasts or to audiobooks, TED Talks. All podcasts, there is always something going on. So I think you're right. And, and the notion of wearing your watch, monitoring your pulse or your movement, and then deciding what music you might want to hear is not that far off. I'm so excited. But so this is what's going on in the innovation field of B2C music. However, from my experience and through user experience research that I've done, I, as we explained also, finding the perfect music for your brand and video production is more challenging because here now we're talking about time and time is money and a lot of people don't have that time and budget. So what can the B2B music field uh, industry learn and implement from the B2C field innovation? What is missing and, and why? I believe that the tools are already here really for the B2B music uh, synchronization business to use. I think one thing is that we have the hubs of experts uh, with a matching product to assist in finding the right track. Uh, I mean, Epidemic Sound obviously being, being, being the best of those. Uh, but at the same time, there's also an unlimited amount of data that you as, as a company can use to identify uh, not only the right track matching your, your brand essence, but also the right track for your specific target group, given that those two are not always aligned. There's so much data out there that you can, that you can dive into as a company. And, and if you have the right experts 
uh, next to you, you can use that data and you can come, you can compare the data. One of the things that I would imagine that I could see in the future is that the, you can even personalize the soundtrack to your brand visuals. Think about it. You know, there's definitely an overlap between what what you and I like, and we should be in in a, in the target group for a specific product. But I'm a rock person. You're an R and B person. How do we how do we work with that visually? It can be appealing to both of us, but sonically, we are two very very different places. There is definitely a room for creating a series of adwords aimed at a number of sub segments in your target group, and then varying the soundtracks. You could probably argue, well, this would go against my audio branding strategy, but but I believe it can go hand in hand. Well, I think you can experience it, right? Sometimes it is only about the brand, that this is the fit, the story that the brand wants to tell. But then sometimes maybe now with the whole VR and, you know, AR and everything like that, that the user can choose depending on okay these kind of genres fit with the brand fit uh, strategy but based on what you like you can choose your own experience to make it even higher yeah i don't think you have to choose i think you have to see it depending on context of the campaign or marketing you want to create yeah that's true coming back to costs and and uh and the way that that is structured, I think with the offerings that we have available today, what makes it time consuming and expensive is the hassle that you experience in locating the rights owner, negotiating individual deals, prepare for possible expansion of reach for your, for your, you know, your campaign and so forth. And I think that's where you will see companies like, like Epidemic Sound thrive in, in, in that space. And, and we will help the businesses in, in both being efficient and cost-effective as well. Specifically, coming back to your question, I mean, what the B2B business can learn from the B2C business, I think is, is relatively simple. Uh, listen to your customers, make it easy for them, make it hard for them to say no. In a business-to-business -business space, I think we have all the tools. And some of the articles also mentioned the subject of sonic branding then. And right now we are standing in the area of sonic boom, the future of audio that everybody has been waiting for is now. So walk us through the strategy. What is the history of sound of success in branding? Sound has always been a key element in, in, uh, in getting our attention. And, uh, and this comes, you know, it goes all the way back from church bells to police sirens and a truck backing up or you starting up your laptop. It's, a mix between alarms and assurance and, and comfort in, in some sense as well. I think when, when, when building a brand, you're trying to build an image of your brand in the mind of your target group that is memorable. It, it needs to be distinctive. If you succeed, you will reach iconic status. And ideally, it creates a connection between the audience and your brand. And, and as mentioned before, sound has been used as a mean of attention for centuries and we talk about the, the power of music and emotions, and we've all tried to watch a movie with the sound off, and it's just not the same experience. I mean, I remember watching Jaws and the shark. Yes, it was scary, but the scary part, that was the music that came just before you saw the shark, because you knew that it was happening. And if, if that music had been left out, I mean, I'm sure it would still have been a scary movie, but it wouldn't have been as scary. 
this is a time to to revamp your your sonic strategy as a as a brand as well and and you know it needs to be on on the audio branding side as well as you know specific sonic logo or sonic branding side as well but also as you say there, there's so many to choose from and it's also important for brands to understand you can't just choose anything to just have a sound because then you, your sound is not communicating what you want you you know you can scare people off uh, if you just choose it randomly so what are your best examples of outstanding sound branding experiences done by brands i think that the, the one that comes to mind you know, top of mind always in in discussions like this uh, is is the Intel sound. You know, and we all know that, and it's it's such an obvious one for me to to highlight. Uh, but it's a classic Sonic branding example that everyone brings up, and it is for a reason. But, but is it because it was good, or is it because they were like first somehow? I I also do think it's because it's good. Uh, I actually do think it's it it is good because it's clean, it's simple. It's reproducible. I remember the, the brief, I've brought this article forward numerous times, but and so I kind of know that the brief from Intel was that, that they wanted some tones that evoked innovation, troubleshooting skills, the inside of computer, but it should sound corporate and inviting. That is a tough brief because there are so many things in there that, that just go against each other. And uh, the, the guy who did this, I call Walter Vesova, you know, I think he over-delivered on that brief because I, I really do think he nailed it. Uh, it's exceptional. And, and the longevity of, of that Sonic branding there for a reason, because it is good. Uh, so I, you know, back to your question, I, I actually do think it's good and it's just not because it's first, because if it was just because it was the first one, it wouldn't have stayed on this long. Uh, and it's only five notes. Just to compare, uh, and I can bring that that up as another example as well, because it's it's actually very close. Uh, so the Danish National Railway, um, DSB, they just created a sort of a similar note. And that's only three notes. Uh, but the notes are actually um, D and then E, S. So it's S and then B. And it's it's so clean and clear and has some of the same things as as the intel uh, sonic brand has as well yeah so i really i really do think it's good i think another one that i want to mention that is a little closer to home for me is the uh, is the two ball christmas beer so that's very local i know uh, but i will encourage everyone listening in to to go on youtube and find the two ball christmas beer it's 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 very simple as well. As I mentioned, I work for Tubo and it's, it's for me, it's one of the best executed local Sonic branding uh, campaigns, in my opinion. It's a simple take on a classic Christmas tune, Jingle Bells, uh, but the connection between the visuals and the advertising campaign and the production of Jingle Bells uh, in, this, in this context is so strong that even the audio alone makes people think of Tubo Christmas beer. And just again, to underline why this is so strong, it's the same commercial that's been running since, since uh, 1984. Another one that I, that I would highlight today, this, this can be listened to at any time, but yesterday I was watching uh, Champions League matches on TV. And that UEFA Champions League signature tune is also to me a perfect example on, on how you can create 
something so very, very emotionally strong in a piece of music. And again, how the link from that grandiose theatrical opera tune, it equals Champions League. It's a main event. It's the gladiators entering the arena and you have this opera and opera and football probably couldn't be further apart. And yet in this context, it's just so right. Uh, I really, I really do love it. The, the times that I've been privileged enough to, to actually attend a Champions League game in real life, it still gives me uh, goosebumps uh, when you enter the stadium and you hear this, this, uh, this music. So that was not three. That was four examples, including DSB, which is, I think, is is a is a good one. Uh, so yeah, you should you should go and check them out. How are you explaining it? it? It's so powerful. Just with your words, without listening to music, you, you, you get that emotional excitement. But why do you believe that every brand needs sonic branding in the brand strategy in the new now then? And how does Epidemic Sound work on helping uh, brands and businesses to succeed with uh, in, in this subject? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and I also do think that I myself have flipped carelessly uh, back and forth between sonic branding and audio branding in our conversation. And, and there is a difference. And maybe we should just keep that in mind. So sonic branding is the expression your brand leaves with people through use. So the drum signature that you hear when you open a Netflix movie or a series or, or the Intel jingle, really. And, and uh, even the sound of a door closing on, uh, on a Mercedes it's about sounds about recognition and, and quality assurance in this in this case. Audio branding is wider. So these are the sounds and music that you use as a vehicle to create emotion and connection through your brand communication. So just to distinct that um, and, and put it in relation to epidemic sound, both of these elements should be an integrated part of, of brand building. At epidemic sound, we have dedicated experts, our curators, uh, helping the brands find exactly what they need to underline the emotions that they want to express. And what we do really, really well is that we work very closely one-to-one -one with the enterprises, the companies going through their briefs, understanding the brand values, what it is that they want to communicate and to whom. So identifying the target group with them and also share the knowledge that we know about that specific group and their music consumption. And then we work together to find the soundtrack for their brand. It, it's not about we get a brief and then we go back and then we bring our suggestions. It's very much about a corporation. And then additionally, I think we have with the range of commercial plans that we have available, we accommodate for any business need and also any business size. So you as a company, you never pay more than what you need for your specific use. So it's very tailored to the use that you have as a as a small, medium, large company, or even as an individual as well. And, and, and you're explaining the, the power that, uh, you know, sound and music has, the, the amazing uh, technology and music uh, catalog that Epidemic Sound has. But, and we, both you and me, we work in the industry, but however, we do know that not all brands are actually um, utilizing uh, the, the full potential. So from your experience, how come sound and music has been neglected, somehow still is neglected as a marketing tool for its full potential for such a long time, 
even though we've seen the success in film and advertising industry, as you saw, Joel or, you know, Carlsberg and etc. I don't really think that it's been neglected as such, as we just spoke about. Some of the some of the greatest sonic signatures are more than 20 or even 30 years old. Uh, and it's some of the most iconic executed marketing campaigns. But I think that there is an increased focus on sonic branding and audio branding in, in general. I think that very much is a, is a sign of the times. The consumers of today uh, are used to juggle numerous attention points simultaneously. I mean, multi-screen, now also multi-sound, because there's so much going on. You know, if you look at teenage boys today, all of them have like one AirPod in, in their ear and, and they're, you know, they're talking to their friends, but they're also listening to music. And it's, it's, a, it's a generation that is, is sort of flaky and fleeting and, and you need to fire on all cylinders to grab their attention. So I think that there is a sound in the use of sound in your marketing campaigns on your brand building is more important with this generation than it has been with any generation before us. So I don't think it's as, it's as much neglect previously, and it's just an, a, a need for increased focus moving forward. Hmm. But, but, but I, I hear you, I hear you, but at the same hmm. time, I, I have a favorite quote from the book, Hit Brands, that when it comes to music, brands want the perfect track but they want to pay the cost of a Skoda instead of a Ferrari. And there is a challenge there. Yeah. Right. So what is your take on that? And how is Epidemic Sound working on increasing uh, the overall value? That's, uh, that's a nice quote. I haven't read the book, I have to say. So it's dangerous to comment on a quote taken out of context. But, but for the sake of argument and, and to hopefully initiate a change in perception or even a discussion, I can only imagine what part of the business this person is representing with this quote, but I definitely agree to the fact that there's always should be balance between product and price. But uh, I think historically it's the system and it's the marketplace where these transactions have taken place that has not been optimal for either brains or the music business. That's my immediate take on, on, on that specific quote. Now, however, there is a general change in perception on working with brands in the music industry. It's no longer seen as selling out to many, many new artists. It's more and more common that artists embrace the possibilities if, of course, that they can sympathize with the product. And, and you know, that's always going to be a challenge. If you don't resonate with the, with the artist, uh, it's going to be hard for you and maybe expensive for you as well to, to find the track that you need as a brand. And obviously, the more complex the track or the sound, uh, the higher the prices paid to the music creator. So, so I think we have a very, very fair business model that is made for optimizing this intersection between commercial and, and uh, you know, a commercial company and a music creator. Uh, where both parties are in agreement already when entering the relationship. It's, it's not about setting a price high um, and negotiating from there. We know already when we are entering the business place, this is what you're going to get. This is the price. Coming back to the comment, it's not something that I haven't heard before. I also think it's, it's not very forward thinking. And then based on all of this, then what 
are your like best practices on how brand needs to strategically think and approach a sound branding in the new now and beyond? I guess with any other part of your brand, you should care deeply about your sonic expression and the impression that leaves with you with your audience. Uh, I mean, you, you mentioned before, if, if I had a remembrance of, 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 you know, fails or mismatches, and I, and I actually can't come up with, with, with someone just, you know, off the bat, but, but that could be a very positive thing, but it could also be a negative thing that, that you know, if there had been one, you kind of just forget them and move on, uh, which is not very positive for the brand either. Developing the right sonic fingerprint for your brand should be as important as your visual identity in these days. I mean, again, coming back to where the next generation operate with the introduction of voice assistants, for example, you know, like Siri and Alexa, brand needs to reassess their marketing approach as well, because we don't know where the next marketplace are going to be. With voice assistants, a lot of the consumption is going to happen verbally rather than using your fingers or, you know, a human to human transaction. It could be really more verbally. And we haven't even talked about uh, the next big thing, the metaverse. How are we going to move about as avatars? How are we going to interact with our brands in the metaverse? And how are you as a brand going to present yourself to that form of consumer in that environment as well? So is that what's around the corner, the metaverse? I mean, it's the first time I hear about, maybe it's because I'm not into avatar world at all, but now with the change of Facebook and everything, you want to explain to people what that means and how brands can use that technology? Um, it's a new virtual space where you create a more 3D version of yourself. In any other social media aspect, you can, you can create a version of yourself in that space. This is what you want to look like to whatever audience you have on your social media. You could you could do the same thing in a in a in this metaverse where you could work with your voices. How do you want to sound as well? Do I want to sound like Klaus? When I'm going to listen back to this podcast, I would probably say maybe not. How about if I sounded like Samuel L. Jackson or Morgan Freeman had one of those voices? That could be a solution. And then you have to look at your brand. How, how do you want to present yourself to that audience in that space? What is your brand voice going to sound like? Uh, what is your tone of voice going to be? Do you work with irony? Should you? And you know, do your brand travel with that voice across borders? Should you sound differently in, in India than how you sound in Sweden and so forth? So there's, there's a lot of challenges in there, I think, for, for companies as well. And again, soundtracking the world in there and then soundtracking your life. Uh, yeah. And it's and everybody knows, like, even in the game industry, which in a way this becomes, that you need to have the sound and music around you uh, to be able to alert things. Um, so it's a very interesting. And what are your takes on like audio UX and free audio sound? The possibilities are endless, uh, again, with the, with the move towards voice activation. But we're also talking about the Apple Music voice plan. I mean, products are moving in that direction. So to a less visual and more audio communicative way, uh, it's accelerating. Um, the headphones, the earplugs, uh, they're getting better and better. And, and, you know, if you just spent 30 minutes on public transportation, you would see that people are all in their own bubbles, blocking out the world with either favorite music, podcasts, radio, audiobooks, TED Talks, you know, it could be anything. 
and from a brand perspective, I think you need to have this in mind when, when working with your overall brand expression. What sounds you're using to support the brand? What kind of voice are the recipients hearing? Is that voice reflecting your brand and, and you know, supporting the values? I think the increase in quality sound and, and, quality and, and, and equipment also, it asks a lot of your, of your high quality in your sonic brand production. There's so much going on in your head all the time. So if the quality that's supporting your brand in your audio expression is not matching the quality of your brand, then, then it's decreasing the value, the overall value of the brand. That part of your branding exercise cannot be an afterthought. It needs to be up there with, with, with any other element of your brand building. They need to know all the touch points that are coming out in terms of, of technology and in somehow they all are different ways of quality and, and experiences or communication. Very interesting. I can't, I can't wait for it to happen. So last but not least, what is next when it comes to the innovation for Epidemic Sound? And if you could predict the future, how does the B2B music technology look like? I don't really feel comfortable sharing too much about the current innovation plans for Epidemic Sound, but I'm definitely happy to give you my 10 cents on how I believe the B2B music landscape will look in, in the next five to 10 years. I think we will see a marketplace that opens up and hopefully embrace the possibilities that are available for both creative and commercial players. I think Epidemic Sound is definitely a representative of that space, but I also do think that we will, we will see it grow. We briefly mentioned that earlier as well. I think the creatives of today have grown up in a commercial environment. I think they may be critical and selective, but they're not afraid to embrace the possibilities that lies within a commercial partnership. Music made to order is already happening. We see rights buyouts happening uh, on, for example, original movie scores, but also on B2B level. There are already people producing music to order, not only through epidemic, but also, you know, from artists to business and so forth. So it's not a place where people don't dare to go anymore. I think this development obviously has been spearheaded by, by epidemic sound and, and, and similar players in the market as well. But now we're also seeing investment companies spending a lot of money acquiring catalogs. And I think that's really interesting. They will at some point demand a return on investment. So the catalogs will need to be capitalized. And I think one way of doing so is by motivating a more smooth and agile route to cooperation uh, with commercial uh, entities. I think it will take some time and I'm sure that there will be a lot of kicking and screaming, but as history has shown us uh, numerous times before, the consumer demand will force the necessary parties of interest to change the business approach and subsequently their business model as well. That's lovely, that's lovely. And how do you feel now working in the new now yourself? I feel great. I think it's, it's an extremely interesting place to be. Again, coming back to your, your, your very, very nice introduction, I really appreciate that. I've, I've had a very lucky career. Um, I think I've been very lucky in working in a lot of interesting companies at a very interesting time. And I think I am in that same place now where Epidemic Sound is today. It's definitely at the forefront of innovation and disruption in the music industry. And I'm very much enjoying being a, being a part of that journey. 
And thank you very much. I'm very happy and appreciate that you're taking the time to share your story and your thoughts with us. Thank you, Klaus. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for having me. Well, that's all for today's episode of The Power of Audio, Science and AI. I'm Jasmine Moradi, your host, and thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and support by sharing this content on your social media. This episode is supported by Stockholm Music City.